Hi, and welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy Middleton. Hey, I'm Amy Middleton and welcome to Women on the Line. Cherche La Femme began in 2010. Host and founder Karen Pickering had the idea for an alternative place to talk about feminism that wasn't a serious academic setting, which was mostly all that was available at the time. So Cherche La Femme began as a laid-back space where women could chew the fat of feminism, pop culture and current affairs in ways that are insightful, informative and entertaining. The topic of November 4's panel discussion is selfies, those dubious photographs we all take of ourselves with beautiful backdrops, babies, dogs, or just on the way to work. From a feminist perspective, is the trend of self-promotion and documentation of everything an empowering thing or empty narcissism? Today we have one of the panellists on the show, uh, artist, writer, and historian of Australian film Virginia Fraser. Virginia holds a Bachelor of Arts from Philip Institute of Technology, Melbourne, and a Master of Fine Arts from the Victorian College of the Arts. Her art practice consists mainly of video and installation works, often made in collaboration with Destiny Deacon. Virginia also edited a book about Australian women in 1974, Screw Loose, an uncalled-for memoir by Peter Blasey in 97, and Central Business Dreaming in 2008. Virginia, thank you for coming on Women on the Line. Thank you. <laughs> on the press release for this edition of Cherche La Femme, I noticed there was an image of Thelma and Louise um, taking a Polaroid of themselves, which is arguably a selfie, an 80s selfie. Um, how long has this phenomenon been around? Well. In your experience. <laughs> um, I, I actually did a bit of boning up before I came and there – I've dug up a, a couple of quite old ones, photography ones. So there's this person called uh, the Countess of Castiglione mm. who in the mid-19th century got somebody to um, take photographs of herself in which she posed in various strange and exotic, sometimes slightly risque sort of poses. And there are lots of them, like 700 or something. Wow. So there's this whole archive of her posing and... Um, frocked up and masks and everything. So that's considering that photography really had been around for under 30 years. She's really making um, extensive use of it. (laughs) And there's... um, Pioneer of the selfie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, of the posh selfie, really, because she was rich. Um, And then there's another person called Elsa von Freitag, Loveringham, who I want to talk about because she um, she took the same kind of photographs or got somebody to take them or done up more dadaist, you know, like um, crazy costumes and silly poses. And but she was a friend of Duchamp, the the. Famous artist. Oh, you know, I don't know my artist, <laughs> looking Virginia. At, looking at your Waiting face. for my recognition. Yes, yes. So, well, he, he, um, he's sort of credited with, in a way, founding, being the starting point of modern art, con- contemporary art as we know it. One of the, the sort of 
seminal work, as it were, was a urinal turned upside down, I think, with R. Mutt, signed Uh, R. Mutt. And so he's the genius who thought this up, blah, blah, blah. But actually she thought it up. It was her work. She did it. She, She was a friend of his and she put it into a, an exhibition via him and somehow he ended up taking credit for it later on or people gave him the credit or something. Wow. And so it doesn't matter how many times this comes up, it's still not written into books, but she took all these interesting photographs of herself. So it's sort of like just a finger hold on posterity in a way, yeah. you know, um, if you can't get in that way. Maybe an interesting selfie or <laughs> keep your place in history. So you think it might have been an artistic legacy decision on her part? I don't know. It just works like that. I mean, I think it was actually part of her her artwork really was to perform. Right. So that's a, a residue of her performances. So would you say the selfie is performative? Well, yes, I think you have to say it's performative, but sometimes it's performative at a fairly low level. In what sense? Well, people haven't put much effort into it. (laughs) Some of them are obviously really performative. People dress up and they're clearly saying not who am I or this is who I am, but this is who I'd like you to think I am. Mm. And, you know, sunglasses and... Makeup and holiday destinations, yeah, special yeah. poses. One of my nieces is a, a real mistress of the selfie, and she's got a special look that she yeah. can just do. She sort of cocks her head in a certain way. It's sort of hilarious, but also really effective. She's awfully good at it. Really? Yeah. Because a lot of them, I I notice on my social media, um, people cease to look like themselves when they pose in that way which kind of defeats the purpose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that is the purpose. It's sending out a more glamorous version of yourself so you can lie at home in your (laughs) pyjamas. Maybe that's what we need, selfies of everyone in their pyjamas. I'm sure there are those too. Good. I'm into those. So uh, let's talk. Do you think the male gaze has much to do with this topic? I mean, well, firstly, what does the term mean to you and, and in... (laughs) <laughs> in art research well, or film research. Right the male gaze. I, well, you said you were going to ask this and I had to research. remind myself, yes. <laughs> I'm an inveterate researcher. Um, well, actually, I, um, Laura Mulvey, a filmmaker from the 70s originally, she coined the term and she wrote what she later called a polemic talking about the male gaze, so it's full of hyperbole and you know, exaggeration to make its point. Mm. And the male gaze, I mean, in that she's really saying that cinema was, it reflected a male's points of view, so a kind of rather consumerist kind of way of looking at women and positioning women and really, it's just really saying that men were in control of that business, the film business, and... They reflected their points of view, which at that time anyway was that sort of um, objectifying way of looking at women. And still is. Well, that's right. Although there are a lot more women making films Mm -hmm. and there's certainly been a lot more jostling about that. And actually that gaze, I wouldn't say is exactly a male gaze, but um, a kind of sometimes it's a bullying look that people apply to each other or... You know, you just sit this way. I prefer you sit. You know, it's mm. it's 
if you only have one group of people making films, white men, then you're going to have their point of view. And mm. if you live in a sexist, racist society, you'll get that. Yeah, that will come through. <laughs> yeah. Because I guess it occurs to me that selfies are an opportunity for women to represent themselves. And it's kind of, I'm very big on this agency thing for oppressed people. And I think maybe it is a way to take back agency for women. Well, yes, but probably just taking a photo of yourself is a small It's small. Step. Yeah. And I think other people have observed this too, but there's really a difference between empower, the feeling empowered and actually being powerful or empowered. And so Let's you tease that out a bit. What, what, can you give us examples? Well, one of the things, there seem to be quite a lot of selfies and um, sort of performances where people rip their tops off. I've never wanted to rip my top off, so it's another thing that I don't really get from an inside point of view. But I can see that there's something going on. So I think, well, why do people rip their tops off on the internet? What are they doing? Because you'd think it's the opposite of... Um, it's sort of the, the... In the first place, say in the 70s, play, 60s and 70s, Playboy and that sort of stuff, it was like almost compulsory to take your clothes off for mm. a certain audience. And I remember miniskirts where it was compulsory to expose a very large amount of your leg and then have them sort of surveyed by every jerk in the office you worked in, you know. Mm. So um, to sort of voluntarily rip your top off to sort of teach somebody a lesson, what is the lesson? That's what I'm thinking. So maybe the lesson is just you can't touch me, you know. It's measuring the distance between jerks and dangerous people and your own safety. Mm. And maybe also it's like I'm going to do this first before you get a chance to, you know. Yeah, but that's not necessarily really empowered, is it? It's no, sort of like it's, well, shooting yourself before they do it, you know. Mm. It's not. Yeah, an interesting one. Um, so how have women, or what would you argue is a better way for women to have agency and represent themselves? <laughs> I'm not a person to um, – I'm not a real expert on this because I hate having my photograph taken. Yeah. So avoidance has been my rule. <laughs> That's how you battle it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And tell us a bit about why you hate having your photo taken. Well, I don't exactly know. Pa part of it is to do with growing up in a sort of atmosphere of forensic looking applied to mm. women and girls. And Can you explain what you mean by forensic looking? Well, forensic photographs are like crime photographs – mainly, and they'll show they're used for gathering evidence. And that sort of look is what I felt was applied to me growing up and to other people. But, you know, and there's a strain of it in my family. And even you go to the beach and you could feel their eyes drilling into the back of you while you were mm. going, you know, I just hated it. Just, oh, leave me alone. Mm. And, and um, so it's assessing, it's self-protective in a way, you know, measuring the competition. It's just a, from a vile culture in which men call the shots and women try to avoid getting hit. Mm. Yeah, I think it's uh, the forensic looking is a, is a new term for me, but certainly something that resonates. I remember being in university and my cultural studies lecturer telling me that... Um, 
women feel watched when they cross a room because they're being watched and they always have been. And it struck me that men perhaps don't feel that and that sounded wonderful. I I couldn't even imagine not feeling self-conscious as you move through the world. But it is a gender-based thing often, isn't it? Well, yes, I think it's exaggerated. Um, And yes, it does have a... a, That particular thing I'm talking about is definitely gender-based. It's all got to do with the roles women were supposed to have. I mean, you know, one of my grandmothers came from a cow farm in Gippsland and came to the city and became extremely well-dressed and elegant and it was very important to her to be always beautifully dressed and a part of that, I think, was to putting a distance between her and the cows. And But she definitely wasn't alone. It was a, it's to do with respectability, not, you know, what kind of woman are you, you know? And... Um, it's just a lot of judgment applied to women and especially to women's outsides. Mm. So tell us about the photography project you did in the in the 80s, was it? I just like, finally about that, when I was walking down Smith Street to get here, there are all sorts of ads in the windows and uh, you're sort of reminded of how pervasive that way of looking has become so that um, men are subjected to it a lot more too, especially younger men I can say there's that anxiety about appearance which mm. you would have liked to have reduced has just been generalised so more people suffer it in a way I wonder if that's more fair <laughs> more vile I think or oh, maybe it's more fair I don't know uh, um, so in the 80s when I was at art school and people were running around with cameras and we were all taking photos of each other and they, I'd take photos of them and then they'd take photos of me and say, oh, no, don't, don't, don't do that. I, I never liked having photos taken of myself so I thought I'd better try and get over this and I took a photo a day with a film camera and then went into my horrible laundry and where I had my dark room and f- developed them and then went through them and printed, tried to print an image a day. I fell a long way behind but I did print a lot and um, it was interesting, and I, it was interesting as a, a photographic thing, but I didn't really change the way I felt about it. I, mean, I thought it would make me, by taking control of it, mm. I'd feel somehow better about having my image taken. But the minute somebody else takes the photo of you, unless you do what my niece does and learn a couple of special poses, <laughs> you, you always, I always end up looking wonky. I see the camera coming and my face freezes and I start doing weird things and it's all just, you know, goes around the circle. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah, that's definitely true. But. <laughs> so tell us about the experience of the photographs. Was it confronting for you? Did you? So was it a selfie but on a tripod? Is that how? And with a timer? Is yeah, I had a, a camera with a timer that I'd, you know, prop on fence posts sometimes or sometimes on a tripod. Um, so most of them were timer shots. Sometimes, you know, the well, standby of holding it up and taking a strange picture of yourself in the mirror where you end up looking in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a mixture of things. And then a lot of them I cropped when it came to printing them and there'd just be a bit of me in it. So I'd sort of focus on the most interesting thing or... or eliminate all the bits I didn't like I'm not sure which one but so I've got a lot of little photos of me from that period but then the next time I sometimes people want you to send them a mug shot you know to be on oh, yeah. their website mm-hmm. and there are 
I've tried to take control of that too, not always successfully. I hate it. Really? They're just Well, people want photographs all the time for everything. They want, you know, all your identity information and a photograph to buy 10 swims at the baths, you know, and you think, what for? Don't, you know... <laughs> They don't know. I mean, this is a true story. And I, in the end, I didn't buy the 10 swims. Wow. I'm not giving all that information to somebody who doesn't even know really why they're getting it. They said, oh, well, you might drown. That and what they, they and said? Then we, yeah, and then we'd know who you were. <laughs> well, I could come in and buy one and have no photo and I'd still drown. And, they, <laughs> you know, people don't know. They just do it. Yeah, and it is invasive, isn't it? Yeah, and they're always nasty photos. Right. I shouldn't take it so seriously. Well, look, do what you want. It's your body. <laughs> yeah. So do you find it confronting looking back on your selfies project now? No, no, I, I, because I took so much control of that when I looked this morning at the photos I took, the, I was quite interested in them. But, you know, I'd already censored them and, and yeah. framed them and, you know. So you, you published a book called A Book About Australian Women in 1974. Four, late nineteen seventy four. Can you talk a bit about what you think has changed about Australian women since that book came out? It's a big topic, Um, and also it's hard to. I mean, some things have changed a lot. There was no legislation, virtually no legislation then, that, that protected women specifically from specific sex based, gender based discrimination Mm -hmm. and violence and there are a lot of places that men could go and there were men could go almost everywhere except the ladies lavatories really and there were lots of places women couldn't go public bars the members stands of various you know sporting clubs blah 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 so a lot of that stuff's changed and the whole conversation about it is different but Women are still, I mean, the area that I'm in, which is art, there's, it's sort of like 30% is 50% when it comes Mm. to women, you know, it's enough. If it gets, if a show's got more than, needs to have two-thirds men, one-third women, and then it's about fair, you know. So there's, and it's, things seem to have sort of stuck there, and it's worse in some galleries and in some countries, and and if, um, for us it's changed and then in other places it's still really terrible. Do you think that the level of feminism and activism around women's issues has lessened because of changes in discrimination laws? And I mean, I imagine if women weren't allowed in public spaces, there would be this quite desperate sort of need, feel for a necessity of activism. Do you feel like that's changed? I don't know why it's changed exactly. Um, I mean, feminism, women's liberation, as it was called in the 70s, was just terribly interesting. You Mm. know, it was like it explained so much. It was like made sense of the world. It it was fantastic and it attracted really interesting people and a lot of exciting stuff came out of it. Um, I think Dale Spender observed that it was like a, a two-generation cycle and that after 50 years women had to reinvent the wheel again. In what sense? Well, starting again with feminism. I mean, the, 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 
People talk a lot more about feminism now, but a lot of what they talk about doesn't seem particularly feminist to me. I mean, I think, what do you mean by feminist? It's just, I went to a talk recently where there were three young women who were all very nice and intelligent and things, but their ideas of feminism were um, personal safety, being nice to everybody and not offending people, and sort of inclusiveness, so diversity. And while they're all sort of good things, they're not necessarily feminist things. I mean, I think feminism is actually, if you want it to work, you've got to kind of analyse what it is and really it's still about the reproductive differences between men and women and the sort of fuss and discriminations and whatnot that are and exploitations that are based on that and a lot of that has just not changed. I mean, even now there's still... Um, people still try and change abortion laws, which is extremely basic, really. Anyway, don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, I do agree with you about this. I mean, inclusivity and, and diversity is a big one at the moment, um, certainly in the circles I move in. Uh, but there is... Uh, there is it perpetuates this idea that you do have to be nice and non-confrontational and that's something that I've been taught and my feminist um, leanings tell me not to subscribe to but then in a professional sense I think it's really necessary for um, well, my own personal mental health <laughs> and also uh, being kind to people who are oppressed. Um, how do you get around that? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I... The thing, well, say the thing about offence. Actually, I think you probably should be allowed to offend people. I'm constantly offended by things, and maybe you have to, as a person, you need to detach from certain things and not get all full of hot air about every time somebody says something stupid or unpleasant. But then there's there are other things that are kind of deliberate bullying, and mm -hmm. you have to make lines between them. And I guess because I grew up with this thing about women having to be nice, which I guess people still do, then it, that idea of feminism really harked back to that idea of what a woman should be, which is kind, nurturing, inclusive, generous, you know, all that sort of thing. And, well, yes, but then you have to protect yourself. And sometimes that doesn't work to make changes and how do you go with confrontation? Is that something you had to get over? I don't really like it, actually. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> and um, it's something I still find difficult sometimes unless at some point a, a switch goes, you know, in your brain and you just sort of won't take it anymore. But I, as a thing, I mean, I can see there are people, women too, who find confrontation quite comfortable. Or invigorating. yes. Exactly, invigorating even. And <laughs> who are aware of how to use it to get their own way. And I particularly dislike it, but I'm still not always very good at dealing with it. Or, um, you know, if people won't deal with you rationally and they want to use emotional reasoning that suits them instead of brain reasoning, I, what can you do about it? I do admire women um, in the public eye that aren't unafraid to engage in conflict because I'll never be one of them. I'll run and hide. 
There are different kinds of conflict too, I think. But yes, as an area, it's. Um, I'd rather write about it than <laughs> yep. slug it out with you. Me too. Um, lastly, before we wrap up, uh, how do you find collaborating with women in on artistic projects or other projects? What can you say about um, about this concept of of confidence or of conflict? Well, I've done a lot of collaborating. It's sort of my preferred mode in a way. Um, and also <clears throat> it it enacts a sort of an idea about the way things are made that I like. I mean, to, I mean, really a lot of artwork and art activity is collaborative, but the sort of convention is that you don't talk about it, that there's a definite preference for a sole author. Is there? Yes, there okay. is. <laughs> and um, so it's a lot of it's about the performance of the artist as an artist. Right. And when there are two, it's confusing, unless they're like Gilbert and George, uh, like a totally unified new unit, you know. They're sort of an unconventionally designed individual. Um, so I've had different experiences. With some of it's been fantastic some of it's been pretty terrible you know it's just the range of human experience some people are just difficult to work with or unpleasant even and other people aren't and I've had a very long collaborate well a collaborative sort of relationship with Destiny Deacon who we've have totally separate practices but also we've done a lot of work together over quite a long time and it's we don't always work together in the same way which is extra confusing for people mm. um, what do you mean by that well they just like it people like it to be stable they it's better if everything's always by you or by her or so this time it's by both of you what's that mean you know it's just and most of it the speculation is uninteresting and unedifying and not very curious about the way things are made. So I've had other relationships and uh, working, I mean the one that Elvis and I have got around FEMO which is a sort of fake magazine cover we produce um, has been, you know, it's much more functional to do with getting that up and we have, we laugh a lot while we're doing it and then we, you know, we don't necessarily hang out a lot together afterwards. Well it's quite a fun project, we'll just um do you want to describe it for listeners who haven't seen it? Yeah, Femo's a large screen-printed magazine cover. So it's, it was a, a paste-up, a sort of permanent, you know, a less ephemeral paste-up. Um, and it's the cover of a magazine we'd like to buy in the newsagents, a feminist art magazine. Um, it's got a big photo on the cover, like a normal magazine, <laughs> of, of um, an artist, a feminist artist, and um, three of the covers are selfies and three of them aren't. And you did one. I did one. I had to do one. Yes, Elvis <laughs> pushed me into it. So I, I figured out a way of doing one that I could live with. So I look like somebody who's been shot by a paparazzo. Yeah, you do. You've got big sunglasses on yeah. and it's a little out of focus. Yeah, and it's far, far away. It's, yeah. a, it looks, it's out of focus because, you know, it had to be blown up so much. But 
But that's a that addresses a lot of this sort of gender imbalance in the art world and the kind of idiotic kind of things that happen and uh, questions like, are you a feminist artist or an artist who feminism made possible? So it's rather black and white and a bit tabloidish mm. too. We have a lot of exposés and probes and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, tabloid can be quite provocative, can't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, bit, it takes a bit of the anger out if it's funny, doesn't it? Yeah. You either laugh or cry. <laughs> That's true. Well, uh, people can find out more about FEMO at femo.wordpress.com. You've got three of the covers up there and they're, they're yeah, fun the, to look at. The 2015 covers haven't been uploaded yet, but they will be soon. All right. Um, Virginia, thank you so much for being on Women on the Line. Oh, it's great. Thanks, Amy. Thank you. Thanks again to Virginia Fraser for chatting with us. And if you're going to be in Melbourne on November 4th, you can head along to cherchezlafemme.com.au for details on how you can attend the Selfies and Feminism discussion, which will feature Virginia alongside three other panellists and, of course, host Karen Pickering. For listeners outside Melbourne, the podcast should be available at some point after the event, again on cherchezlafemme.com.au. I'm Amy Middleton, and thanks for joining me for another edition of Women on the Line. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women at 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. Women on the Line can be downloaded from our website, womenontheline.org.au, or download the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash podcast. I'm Amy Middleton. Tune in next time for another edition of Women on the Line.